Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost and Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who has mastered the move of dive and shoot. It makes him <laughs> unstoppable the- in all gunfights. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and they never expect that. No, they, they you- never do, because they-, they haven't seen the movies. Right, right, right. What they think is going to happen is that they're going to shoot, and then you're going to fall down. Yes, Not that yeah, you're going yeah. to fall down before any shots it, it are fired. Ma- it makes you invincible <laughs> in all in all <laughs> westerns. I mean, like they're like they're shooting straight. You're diving. You're going right yeah. under the bullets. It's, it's yep. science. Right, right. It's under like them. well, you know, in the Olympic biathlon, shooting from yeah. the prone position is yeah. the easy one. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there you go. I mean, that's. I mean, really. What we're what we're looking at is he's really setting himself up for success. Then he's got to go ski, right. and then That's, yes, yes. They don't uh, show no. you the uh, the gunfight <laughs> because they can't show you the gunfight. Right, <laughs> right. He he they dove also, to the ground. They can't show you anything after that. Right. Noticeably, <laughs> they also can't show you the skiing. But that's, right. if this movie had it. ended, if this movie had ended with John Wayne cross country skiing into the sunset, <laughs> uh, would have been perfect. Uh, well, that voice you hear, friends, is Adam Speakerman joining us once again. Good to have you back, Adam. Glad to How be you back. Been? I've uh, I've been pretty good. So the The United States just passed a huge climate bill, and then the FBI yeah. raided Donald Trump today. So, like, yeah, you know, it's, we, it's, we were, it seems we like positive news. <laughs> it's a yeah, yeah. Last time you were on, we were recording the night of the Oscars, uh, <laughs> and we we all missed we all missed the the infamous slap uh, as Pat was talking about live TV being a different animal. Uh, and uh, then this, this we time, we wound up missing the end of the Oscars because we'd set we still have a DVR we'd set our DVR to record just half an hour over. Turns out we needed an hour. <laughs> Pat, before we get into the movie this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We what do a non-criterion. bonus content? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> was well, Pat, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Over there, we do a non-criterion film every month, and our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch. Put together a list based on whatever whim I'm feeling. Sometimes it's uh, Eclipse films. Sometimes it's children's films sometimes uh it's uh just weird documentaries if we can handle it uh but we have a lot of fun uh yeah it's just it's a real eclectic mix over there not that the regular criterion collection is not an eclectic mix it gets eclectic every 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 new film we watch with the regular collection too but I do a themed list with four choices, and then the fifth choice is always Kazam, the children's movie from 1996 starring Shaquille O'Neal, which they've made us watch twice. And I've begun to realize that if we're going to keep that, if we're going to keep the same thing as option number five, I'm going to have to start re-listening to the episodes before we record a new one, because I, I don't, I just don't want to have the same conversation. <laughs> I, over and I over assume again. that's why that one hasn't been picked again in a long yeah. time, is because nobody wants <laughs> because to hear the first about Shazam. Yeah, the first two were just identical episodes. We probably could just re- just release the same episode. <laughs> Those bonus episodes, there's 60 over there now. And like I said, just $1 a month gets you access to that whole catalog. 
and to uh, to the vote. A little above that for folks who can afford to help keep us going a little bit stronger, and we greatly appreciate them. We'd like to thank those folks on air. Thank you so much to our current $5 supporters, Chris Otto, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Andrew Jarrett. A bit above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized note every month, and uh, we'd like to thank those people on air too. So thank you to our $10 supporters, Jason Westhaver, Nina Bajnak, Patrick Yako, Tracy McGrath, and, hey, Adam Speakerman, you're on that yes. list. Thank you, thank everybody. You. Yeah. You're very welcome. <laughs> if you want to see those <laughs> postcards without committing to that $10 market, head over to redbubble.com, search for Lost in Criterion there, and you can, uh, you can buy them if you want as postcards, as greeting cards, as stickers. Cover up racist graffiti in your neighborhood like, like I do. That's what we, and, our uh, primary use for it, yeah. With our with our Lost in Criterion <laughs> sticker. Thank you so much to anyone who has bought anything on the Redbubble. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters. And thank you so much to you for listening. Well, this week we are talking about Stagecoach from 1939. Not to be confused with Stagecoach from 1964. Or the made-for-TV version starring Johnny Cash, which I think we need to watch for a bonus episode. Maybe. I think that is the bonus uh, list, right? It's yeah. going to be, right? Uh, just... Other movies with Johnny Cash, maybe. Uh, but, uh, yeah, 1939, directed by John Ford and starring in uh, his star-making role, uh, John Wayne, with uh, with a breakout. Um, not his first starring role. Uh, apparently, he had tried that, and it bombed in 1930, and he spent the rest of the decade <laughs> making B-movies, or lower. Yeah, that... Uh... That was yes. the big trail, the which is famous because it was the a widescreen movie that was made in like a oh, large format in the early '30s, uh, and so like the movie bombed, and they blamed, you know, everybody, but it was possibly bombed because no theaters could <laughs> right, show it because right. it was a brand new format, um, and yeah, then Wayne did do a ton of B and C pictures, uh, mostly all westerns, uh, after that movie bombed, so. And then John Wayne, or John Ford, put him in this movie and put that shot that uh, where he dollies into his yeah. face into that huge close up that uh, what we call a Spielberg shot now because like you know going in into an actor from a medium shot to a close up on their face uh, and right, right. boom, Might a star well was just born, pop up right? and so. introducing as uh, as you do that zoom, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, it's. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's hardly the only impressive camera work for a 1939 movie in this in this. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of close ups, a lot of it's it's pretty clear that Orson Welles watched this a lot uh, before making uh, Susan Kane. Uh, there's a lot of that uh, shot where Wayne's standing on the left side of the screen and yeah. you're looking down the long hallway and he's like just smoking and just kind of lit with rims and then he turns and walks down the hallway like it's such a Citizen Kane shot I rewatched that earlier this year because they put Criterion put out their edition and like when I saw Stagecoach last night when I was watching it I was like oh my god like Orson Welles loved that shot it's so extreme as a shot because it really makes it was shot with a really wide lens and it makes like you know Wayne's body just really stretch out and it emphasizes the verticals and it's like such a great great piece of like expressive little throwaway camera work so but uh 
they uh, Ford shot an insert, so it's like Wayne's walking down the hallway, it then cuts to a closer shot for a little conversation that he has with the guy, you know, in the hallway. Uh, oh, yeah. Whereas Wells totally would have just, like, let all that play in a single shot in, in deep space. Absolutely. So, uh, you know. Yeah, there's also... Um, David Karen does the essay for the for the Criterion release for this, and he he says uh, one thing Wells Wells definitely didn't steal from this movie were was following the 180 degree rule because Ford does not follow the 180 degree rule. Well, I would say David Kearns is somewhat incorrect there because what Ford's there well probably the editor because right. Ford wasn't really involved with his the editing of his pictures. Uh, what the editor keeps doing is uh, they keep reestablishing the line. So, like, you know, if the line is established by, like, you know, you're behind the stagecoach and then, like, you come back to the right behind it and then you come back further to the right to show something else, then the next shot might still be on the same side of the line, but it might go all the way around to show the stagecoach from another perspective. That's, like, you're still on the same side of the line, but you're reestablishing where the line is. Right. So you can now there move was... in a different section so like each little like three shot sequence of the stagecoach of that attack makes complete sense in how it's edited you never have like a shot of the stagecoach like rushing screen right and then the shot of the stagecoach rushing screen left which would that's what a real violation would be where you're really just like destroying the sense of screen space it's more like the line is dynamic because it's an action scene and you know you kind of, it's kind of like compounding, like overlapping, like little sequences, pieces of footage where each little section makes sense. And then the overlap section is where you get to reestablish yeah. the line. So it's right. very complex editing. Uh, it's, you know, it's action editing. It's extremely well done. Uh, but Wells talks about that too. And, and the Citizen Kane supplements, he's like, you know, it's like they had to explain to me what, you know, the, you know, the whole like, shot continuity was and everything because i'd watched stagecoach and john ford doesn't pay any attention to that and but uh because that's a a thing with green directors is like the the 180 degree rule is a very very hard concept for people that haven't uh had it explained to them or worked on the cutting side of things in terms of how you know gazes are situated and what like feels right versus wrong it's uh and, you know, and those are rules that are set up because, like, our brains process it a certain way and, like, they get jolted if it feels like someone that's supposed to be on the right side is now on the left side, you know, uh, because, like, something reversed weirdly. Uh, and uh, it is a hard thing to conceive because you have to, like, right. hold all these different perspectives in your head at the same time to figure it right, out on your own. It's a hard own. thing to intuit um, from just watching movies. Yes. Um, yes. I will say in this... I. I think you're right to push back against what the essay says because I never felt lost at all Mm-mm. in that in that uh, that particular scene with the with the attack on the stagecoach, uh, which is what uh, Kearns is uh, referencing specifically. Oh, you know, and there's another apocryphal story about you know John Ford and that like uh, uh, people were would always ask like, well, what when do you move a camera and and like how how do you decide like what's going to be a camera move versus just like a lock off and he's like when do you move the camera when it calls for it <laughs> and it seems like a very like you know almost belligerent answer and it kind of is but like he moves the camera a lot in this movie and if you look in that action scene 
the shot where Yakima Kanat does the famous stunt where he's like just jumping from like, you know, the coach to the first set of horses to the jumps to the second set of horses, jumps to the third set of horses. Uh, like that shot is, you know, the stagecoach is moving at speed and the camera is on a truck that is also moving at speed. So the camera is moving and the camera is also the truck is moving at a speed so that it readjusts for each jump. So it's like, there's no cutting involved and the camera is moving because it has to move because the whole amazingness of the shot and of the stunt and everything else, none of it works if there's cuts in that, if there's inserts. Right. It's like it's all it being one shot is what makes it amazing. Um, yeah. Well, from also my understanding of the stunt work and there is a there's one bonus feature that talks a bit about the stunt work, too. But it's it's also a famous enough stunt that if you've ever watched any any show on stunt work, I think uh, uh, Pat, yeah, Pat we were talking, talking about, about that. Too. There's a there's uh, a couple of YouTube channels mm-hmm. that I follow. They, they they whenever people start talking about stunts, if there's any sort of like moving vehicle stunt, eventually somebody brings yeah. up stagecoach because yeah yeah you know. But the uh, the stunt had to be done at speed because if the uh, if the stagecoach was traveling any slower, it became wavy. Uh, so they had to they had to go as fast as possible just to keep it in as straight a line as possible so that when he goes under the stagecoach he wanted to have been hit accidentally by the wheels and that's a separate stunt because there's two amazing stunts there's the one I was describing and then the one you're describing is when the Apache oh yes yes jumps, yes, yes jumps onto the horses gets shot down and then right. falls underneath everything which yeah. is just like you watch that and you're like holy shit yeah yeah, yeah. and all and but all of those there's yeah. also some excellent force perspective work there which is often the case in stunts where it's like you know you can't see from the camera's perspective how much space is in between the horses right like the lens is very carefully chosen to collapse that distance and the angle and everything so that it feels as intense as possible so yes uh but as far apart as they could put the horses for safety uh the stagecoach itself was still a built thing that had a set (laughs) a set distance between the wheels uh, and uh, they talk about in the special features, there was a, a bad Lone Ranger movie in the early 80s that tried to recreate the stunt and it like crippled the stunt guy because the stagecoach wheels went over his legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, yeah, that that feature is uh, with Vic Armstrong talking about it. And he's the stunt guy in question on, worked with Vic on uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um which which and, has a which yeah has a stage which also has, has a stage yeah, coach yeah, homage in it, it. yeah or uh, that, that, that Armstrong yeah. that Armstrong puts at says that it was probably it wasn't his suggestion so it was probably the suggestion of the other guy who was trying to uh, literally get his legs back uh, mm-hmm. from uh, from the accident um, but he said that they would they would talk shop every night as they just went for a run and he got his strength back having had both of his legs crushed and nearly lost in that Lone Ranger accident. Uh, yeah, Knut did all of the stunts. Uh, every, every, uh, every Navajo is, is him in a different outfit as the stunts are doing. Um, but this movie is, uh, yeah, it's just famous for him uh, and him inventing all of the things that they're doing, <laughs> basically. Uh he, uh, ben Hur was another big one. I mean, yeah, Yakima Kanat did, did stunts for everything, but like yeah. that's one of his most famous ones. Uh, yeah, uh, he directed the entire chariot scene. Uh, yeah, well, he did a huge amount of the stunts for the yeah. chariot scene. Like yeah. he did 
came up with a lot of the ideas for it and yeah. and figured importantly figured out how to do them right so, right yeah. which is the real the real thing here yeah right well, i and mean the, that's you the, know the part of the trick one right? of the, but he was a rodeo guy which means a lot of that stuff like kind of you know what i mean like that's where you can you can see the through line right like of being like okay mm-hmm. like rodeo is mostly just stunts like th- that kind of like show rodeo is mostly just stunts and then yeah it kind of transfers over right yeah. yeah well and i also think he must have been just unbelievably good relative to everybody else because everyone gives him credit. Right. Like John Ford gives him credit. John Wayne gives him credit. Charlton Heston gives him credit. Like, you know, most stunt stunt people are utterly anonymous, you know, for in the 1930s or today. And what he did was so above and beyond. It's like people still know his name. Like, and and especially in an era like a classic Hollywood where like, you know, you could stole as much credit as you possibly could for anything as right. often as possible. The fact that no one ever stole credit because he was the only person that could do right. it. Uh, and they still I think a lot of people still like in like Charlton Heston still don't know how he did a lot of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, so well, they're just like, yeah, that guy. It might also be fair that, you know, for for at least one particular aspect of the stunt work in this one, no one else wanted to claim to be the guy who invented how to trip horses. Uh, right, well, yeah, especially now, right? Like, oh, yeah, I invented yeah. The, the ultimate way to make horses fall down. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Vic Armstrong calls it a bit barbaric as he <laughs> explains the mechanism. Yeah, I mean, and then they show some a couple of the shots, and, it, you know, you see the horses get up from them right, in right, the, right. those shots, but I can totally see where this is, like, something that, could injure them or would hurt them even if they survive it okay and that's what obviously why we wouldn't yeah. want to do that today right. like there's a lot of uh uh there's it's a great thing there's been so much pushback to like make sure that we're not doing like dangerous stunts for animals anymore so yeah cannot obviously knows it's coming and can prepare the horses can't no matter right no well matter how. there was uh, another movie charge of the light brigade that came out a few years before this uh that is kind of infamous because they killed so many horses oh. in like that titular battle scene of british right. imperialism being really stupid uh trying to conquer india so not a good movie so yeah uh so that so yeah, have to be cannot, cannot actually because that like caused an uproar even in the 30s, oh, sure. and he probably had that in mind as he was coming up with ways to try to that do makes... things safely. Yeah, that so. makes sense. Yeah, or safer. Right, so. right, safer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I'm still. Well, I'm not convinced that yeah. no horse was uninjured after. No, that, I can't after... remember. Oh, I once, no, I once <laughs> watched it. I did watch a video about it, and I think there were some some injuries but like i think it was surprisingly little considering what they were doing it was kind of one of those sort of deals where it was like wow how did they like either whether it's luck or or the fact that maybe he had figured out a little bit slightly safer way to do it uh, yeah but yeah um one of the other interesting aspects of the film that the bonus a uh, bonus feature is dedicated to uh that kind of gets into that scene too there is a bonus feature called True West, which is uh, a presentation by author Buzz Bissinger, uh, the guy who wrote Friday Night Lights, which okay seems like a weird choice, but I guess he's the guy with the knowledge here. Uh, but he talks about the guy who got this movie made in Monument Valley, 
There's a guy named Harry Golding who in the 1920s was out with his wife and discovered Monument Valley for himself and thought it was a really beautiful area. So they moved in and became traders with the Navajo and taught themselves Navajo uh, and had a really great relationship with them. And in 37, uh, like a lot of other places in the U.S. uh, at that time, times were tough. Uh, and he decided, with consent of the Navajo who owned the land, that uh, he would try to get a film crew out there. So he he took pictures of Monument Valley to Hollywood uh, and was annoying enough that a location scout finally decided to meet with him rather than call the cops and uh, got well, the movie made out took, here. And uh, he took professional like yes. 8x10 photo, Ansel yes. Adams type of like that, right. not from Ansel Adams, but right, that right. kind of style of photography. Yeah, a, like he didn't just like you know use like a little. Right, right. It was a German uh, Instaflex camera or something. It was an actual like, like no, no. Let me show you how beautiful this place right. looks. It was a German photographer, but I can't remember mm-hmm. his name offhand. Um, yeah, and uh, it it is remarkable how uh, last year Kino put out a couple of really early John Ford silence that are there's a early john ford called bucking broadway that's a special feature on this one uh and there's only really like three of his like pre-1920 movies that have survived and kino put out the other two and it's kind of remarkable seeing both in that movie and the other two and literally any other western made after that point up until stagecoach they're all shot in new hall southern california new hall's part of santa clarita where i live uh and you know these were all just western ranches in the right. 1920s and this was like remote it was remote enough that every western would come up here and shoot uh and it's the first thing i noticed when watching stagecoach having watched those old westerns last year was like it's so different visually right. like the landscape is just yeah. blows away they, anything you've seen in any western up to that point because you've seen the same kind of scrubby you know low uh, mountains that are kind of like adjacent to Los Angeles and then boom, you're out there in the monument Valley. And it's just, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. So yeah, yeah. beautiful vistas there. There's I mean, obviously a lot of scenes where the monuments that those, those buttes are in the background, but particularly there's, there's one uh, right after they leave the first city where the stage comes up over a ridge and right before it crests, there's, just a view of monument valley and then just everyone walking by and it's so so very clearly not a matte painting uh, uh-huh. and, <laughs> and then like well that final <laughs> shot almost looks like a matte painting it's right, so right. surreal yeah 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 so, well uh, and yes the that earlier shot's amazing as well uh there is actually one shot that was definitely shot in new hall uh still because you see the stagecoach come through a famous landmark called beale's cut which is like these two, like you see Buster Keaton jump over it and like silent movies, it's been in a million movies. Uh, and it's these two mammoth rocks and there's like just wide enough space in the bottom for like a coach to roll yeah, through. Yeah. Uh, and it, that all collapsed in the 94 uh, Northridge earthquake. But uh, it's been, it's in a million movies. And every time I see it, I'm like, yep, that's not too far from where I live. There you go. <laughs> you could have jumped across it. No. Uh, no, I would die. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, don't do that. Uh, well, so, anyway, I, I mentioned Monument Valley. Obviously, it's, it's great to mention. But Vic Armstrong also uh, convinced 
the uh, the Navajo to perform in the movie and convinced John Ford to pay them uni- union wages for performing in the movie. Uh, so this is... Well, uh, that's... I mean, he might, might very well have convinced Ford to do that. That also is the sort of thing that Ford might have come up with on his own because yeah. uh, Ford was president of the Directors Guild. Uh, one of, He was one of the founding members of it. Uh, so he was very pro labor. Uh, well, shortly after this, he would actually like make a movie with like the founder of the Writers Guild and like the founder of like the pro- maybe not the Producers Guild. One of the, oh the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, uh, and it's one of the most pro labor movies made in the 1940s. How Green Was My Valley. Yes. Uh, so the idea, like, I think. It could very well have been his suggestion, and you know, like he had been like, "Oh, we've got to pay him too." Like, and right, and then Ford being like, "Well, we're going to pay him the same as anybody else because this is a union show, and that's what we do," you know. Uh, and uh, I, I would be very curious whose idea that actually was, because from what the features imply, both what Ford saying in another interview and like what that that author is kind of implying is like the Navajo refused to work with most other. Uh, comp- productions that would come up there because those comp- productions would come up expecting to pay them like you know minimal wages yeah. and you know this first it, you know they got the union wages on the first one and they weren't going to settle for less so there you go well good on him for that however it yeah. came together yes I am also I'm saying that based on what Bissinger reports in that bonus feature but mm-hmm. like I said I don't really understand why Bissinger is the guy who gets to talk about that on, on a bonus feature anyway so uh but I know it's uh, I mean, it is it's a kind of glossed over in that bonus feature. But I think just the logistics of getting to these kinds of remote oh, yeah. places in yeah. the 1930s is something that we so easily overlook. Like, you know, there was like one automobile ro- road, like Route 66, like that, yeah. you know, not there weren't like, you know, 80 even there was one that you could right. cross like the rocky mountains you know like there even, was like maybe three train routes you could take but like yeah getting up to to that part of utah or new new mexico is was just like incredibly difficult <laughs> even today in the monument valley itself there's only one dirt access road uh you, good <laughs> yeah right right absolutely yeah um yeah, so essentially a national park, but it's a Navajo national park, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, if you want to go through it, you got to go on the dirt road. So yeah, uh, big heavy Hollywood trucks uh, getting stuck in the desert over and over again as, they, <laughs> as they're trucking out there, I'm sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, there is, there is one other, there is the interview with John Ford from 1968 that's a bonus feature on here that, uh, that I love. Uh, and do want to talk about it a little bit just because it one it is hilarious that John Ford either thinks it's funny to pretend to or really cannot actually understand the received pronunciation of the BBC reporters interviewing him uh, and frequently ask for them to repeat the question uh, mm-hmm. some, sometimes because he doesn't understand them and sometimes because he just doesn't want to engage with the question. Yeah, uh, uh, and you can definitely see yeah. watching that like that where it's sometimes it's generally he can't understand it like or pick it up, but a yeah. lot of times it's very strategic. Yes. So they uh, what's not strategic is that the BBC's like uh, 
camera 16 millimeter camera rolls kept running out like yes. just as he was starting to say the most interesting thing he'd said right. like three separate times yes and then and then when it comes back he he says oh what were you asking me and and gets belligerent again yeah <laughs> so, yeah yeah there was there was one sequence where they uh, they ask him if they think that the destru- if the destruction of the native americans is a blot on american history that he pretends not this. to understand the question like five times uh, then finally says it's it's politics, not pictures, and he doesn't want to talk about politics. And he turns it back on yes. them and names and names it genocide, yeah. telling them it's politics. Genocide is politics, or something yeah. like that. Like yeah. they're not saying that. He's the one that uses that word, which is right, right, remarkable for the 1960s. Yeah. Turns around and asks if uh, how would they feel if he if or would they consider it a blot on English history to talk about the genocide of the black and tans in Ireland? And they refuse to answer that question. And then they just sort of move on very quickly. Well, they, they are very evasive about that yes. question. And then finally admit they really don't know anything about it, or at least to try to move things along. Right, right, right. But, you know, it's also like, you know, if you're a reporter for the BBC in the sixties, you right. came from a private school, you're right. moderately upper crust. You, you know, your education has very deliberately not told you what happened in that, you know, that particular instance of incredibly, um, incredibly true. Uh, also, yeah. I think, uh, even if you did know about it, your job might, uh, be based on you not knowing about it, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, um, Getting into that conversation, yes. even on, even on something that's going to end up on a cutting room floor, is well, it's, probably... it's such a brilliant way to turn <laughs> right. the same situation right back on them. Because yeah. it's like I think Ford's perspective is it's you could see it upsets him. It really yeah. upsets him to think about what was done to the Native Americans, and you can also kind of like feel coming off of him that there's nothing he can do about it. The best yeah. he can do is you know. I th- get them jobs and work when he can yeah. and treat them with respect. You know, he can't change the past. I think one thing that really sets him off in the question is that they say Redskins. Oh, uh, yes. You, yeah. oh man, boy, you see his hackles literally rise. Yeah. Yeah. He ma- he makes them say it like three times or four yeah. times too, just to get them like yeah. really crystal clear. Like, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. That's another, like I said, sometimes, sometimes he asks for a repeat of the question out of belligerence and sometimes <laughs> seemingly because he actually can't understand what they're trying to ask. But mm-hmm. um, another one he's sort of belligerent about is when they ask him about uh, if he, if he thinks that the early American settlers would be ashamed of what America is now um, or what American society. Um, and he says, ultimately he says you can't compare the times, but uh but he thinks he thinks they sh- would be ashamed, uh, and he gets a little he gets a little messy in his answer to his mm-hmm. to the follow up question, uh, which is what what about American society dismays you? And first he says that it's wrong to call America a society because there are no class differences. <laughs> No class distinctions in America, which is... I was just like we've. Ju- I was like I've just watched Stagecoach where right, you like eviscerate right. the class distinctions right. in American society. Right, right, so. right. Which is just an incredibly weird thing for John Ford to say in 1968. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, he talks about being worried about the student riots and the anti-racism. He then goes on to suggest that 
everyone who had been arrested thus far in the civil rights movement was white and a foreign national, uh, which is, I don't know, uh, not a not a great read of the current uh, current world. He, he also kind of starts talking about the Watts riots, and he's like, well, that wasn't the people down there, you know, that was, that was people, outside agitators coming right, in that right, caused right, most right. of that, which... Right. He might not be entirely wrong. Like, you know, yes. there, there are he, witnesses from the white, the Watts riots that he ap- say it was instigated by. Yeah. yeah. He is so, approaching. I mean, he is the approaching riots all grew out of, of control, which was the idea. But yeah, yeah. So. he is approaching all of that from a perspective of not trying to denigrate African-Americans. Mm-hmm. But he approaches it then by blaming outside agitators and even outside of America agitators like some some sort of unnamed soviet influence or something um yeah which is uh he's being purposefully vague because (laughs) like he is definitely someone that knows all about pinkerton (laughs) right and everything else and probably just like immediately assumes all of them are caused by those right right yeah yeah it was just it was again but you know it is always interesting with like the politics of a people especially someone like john ford or anybody of a different era are always so difficult to parse because like they don't land on the same lines that we would expect today like you know uh john john ford made a movie called the last hurrah starring spencer tracy in the late mid to late 50s uh and spencer tracy is an openly corrupt old school irish uh politician and is being elected by the lower class Democrat Irish population, uh, you know, uh, Irish and black population of the inner cities still in the area where he's running his last campaign. And the villain of the story is someone that is pretty much like a ringer for John Kennedy, uh, <laughs> who is, you know, the rich people's good Irishman, who is basically working for the other side, not for the people. Uh, but is like who, you know, who the Spencer Tracy character is really actually trying to go against. And it's so fascinating to see and know that like two years after this movie was made, it just becomes completely unwatchable because of Kennedy's election. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is, it just doesn't fit within the reality of politics two years later. Right. But it was like a, a pretty probably, you know, for men of his generation was probably a, like a fairly potent kind of like uh, political ideology that like, you know, the Irish had been treated their whole lives like a minority and they weren't going to accept this idea that they were going to be embraced by all the wasps that had hated right, them and right. put them down for their whole lives. And that that was something people needed to watch out for. And so. that is absolutely another aspect of that interview with the BBC guys is that Ford, repeatedly shows he knows more about the class structure and the specific people in it of England than they know. <laughs> right, right, right. So he's he's coming in at it from from embracing his Irish roots mm-hmm. uh, and is already on, on edge against them and then is smarter than them in so many ways. Uh, yeah, I get I get his reluctance to openly answer questions that they don't even know what they're asking when they ask really mm-hmm. um yeah i would i would have loved to hear, hear more his more nuanced answers to the pr- questions about 1968 but i understand why he was not giving them in this case 
mm-hmm. and wrapping back around, as you said, we just watched, we just watched Stagecoach. We know he has a mind for for the class separation of uh, of America, and we know that he has a mind of talking about politics in America. This is a movie made in the late '30s where. Uh, <laughs> where the corrupt banker character is introduced yeah. saying what's good for the banks is good for the country. Um, and that you can just feel the whole audience <laughs> booing after he right, says that. Right. right? So. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it was, that was actually like kind of surprising for me. Like, I mean, I'm sure for, for all of us, it's sort of a, it's kind of like, you know, you can, you know, the, like all the things that had happened in America had probably made that a much more uh, palatable, uh, sort of a sort of thought process and and something that people like you know could like get behind right but like i was just thinking like it it is amazing to hear it in a 1930s movie and then also think about like i'm watching it in like 20 you know 22 or whatever and it's like okay but like people don't say that like movies don't have that (laughs) as a like when you think about the films that have that kind of thought process like put in there they're not Mm -hmm. the like they're not the sort of films that would be like exactly comparable to Stagecoach. They're more, you know, because they're they tend to be the more independent films rather than like, right? You know, they're not the big studio westerns. Exactly, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. or the the equivalent of a big studio western. Yeah. now which well, I guess would have to be like this, a Marvel movie, right? I don't know. <laughs> But. This movie was not a big studio western. That's fair. This was Walter Wanger, an independent producer, uh, is the one who made this because. Ford was under contract at Fox and they didn't want him to make a Western. So right. he oh, had okay. bought the rights to stagecoach himself. And so he basically, he finished up drums along the Mohawk for Fox and was just like, all right, I'm going to go make this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, yeah. I think yeah. it was Selznick himself who told him, told him no. Uh, yeah. If I, Selznick or Zanuck. I'm not sure who it was yeah. at that point. So probably Zanuck. So Selznick was independent. Selznick was making gum with the wind at the time. So Zanuck was head of Fox. That would make so. sense. In any case, Fox said no. Uh, and yeah, Ford owned the rights, so he decided to do it on his own and found somebody else. Uh, which, yeah, is, is really fascinating too because it's, it's this is Ford taking a lot of risks, taking a risk on a star, taking a risk on, on this location. Uh, just big investments. Um, and yep. obviously taking a risk in that he's making a movie that his normal producers told him not to make so well and in a genre that was popular but that wasn't you know blockbuster popular right like, you know there's uh the last big western made before this was probably like cimarron which had won best picture in like 1931 or 32 but you know there were there were westerns constantly being made but like the 30s had a lot of serial westerns they had a lot of like singing cowboy westerns like it was not a prestige uh, other than like Cimarron and Stagecoach for that whole decade. It was not a prestige genre. So right. like the, the real like, like heyday of the Western, like was caused by Stagecoach right. and occurred in the forties and fifties. So, right. And he, he had not been making Westerns prior to this yeah. as much he, either. He'd made three bad men, which was on the Criterion channel a few months ago. Uh, was his last Western as a silent Western. He later remade it as uh, Three Godfathers, I think. Uh, and that's maybe his best silent Western of the ones I've seen. It's just, it's got, uh, it's got, I, I think it's 
the North Dakota or South Dakota land rush in it for the climax. And it's just a spectacular piece of filmmaking, like a exciting bit. And then that's after that, then you cut into like the actual chase scene where the villains are chasing like the heroine and the, the good guys are, are sacrificing themselves to save her so that she can uh, stake her claim. So, yeah. And of course we've already mentioned there's, there's bucking Broadway is, is on, one of the bonus features on the Blu-ray release here um, that's, you know, it's a, a perfectly fine little, little Western too. I really love, obviously it's not the original, but the, the soundtrack that they put on with the Criterion release is, is really fitting and really, really fun. I was much yeah, more interested I, uh... in the music than the film. <laughs> <laughs> I started watching it again last night. I watched it when I first got this Blu-ray 10 years ago. Uh, and my, I think this is maybe that batch of early Blu-rays from Criterion that like, like started going bad because everything oh, no. else on the disc worked, but Bucking Broadway, it stopped seven minutes in. Oh, that's And so I was like, oh crap. And I pulled up the Criterion channel and they actually have the whole disc on the channel. It's one of those ones. Well, and uh, so I put it on and promptly fell asleep. So, <laughs> which well, tends to happen with silent movies after midnight. Right, right, so yeah. <laughs> you, uh, you missed the best bit. In that movie, uh, there's a scene where they're playing piano, uh, and the uh, the soundtrack works in all of the wrong notes they're hitting on the piano, just as <laughs> as the characters sort of just hit random keys for a couple of minutes and then play "No Place at Home" but play it off key. And uh, even there's one point where you can see that the person, the hands playing the keys, accidentally hit two white keys at the same time, and that's that's in the soundtrack there at that point too. So it was, <laughs> it's just, the music's really well done for that one. Nice. The storyline so, is a little oh, silly, right. but, but it's a silent era Western. Of course, the storyline's a little silly, but right. Yeah. yeah. Of course. I mean, yeah, yeah, of course. Pat, you so were saying. I, well, well, oddly enough, speaking of music, uh, an interesting thing happened when I went to watch Stagecoach. I was like trying to find a place where I could watch it. And, uh, I discovered it was, it was free on Japanese Amazon, okay, uh, as, like, a part of the pr- of Prime, right? And uh, I went to go watch it, and, like, they had two versions, okay? They had the dubbed version the subtitled version, which is fairly normal. Like, for whatever reason, they split, split them out. They don't have, like, options. You just have to watch one or the other version. Uh, and so, so, well, the, su- the dub is not what I want. I want the subtitled version. So I go to load it, and um, interestingly enough, the subtitled version of it was a silent film. <laughs> Oddly enough, as far as I can tell, when it was released overseas to other audiences, which would have been like, you know, in the late 30s in, in uh, like nobody like they they had a they made a dubbed version, but there were no there was no system by which to do proper subtitling. So it just worked as a silent film. And so it went, there was no dialogue at all. It was all music and it would have interstitial cuts with dialogue in them for the for that version. <laughs> Uh, well, which is uh, which was interesting. We we got about five minutes. I'm like, wait, stagecoach is in a fucking silent film. What am I? Do? What's going on here? So, well, I'm, glad, yeah. I'm glad you did manage to find an actual copy. Then, yeah, no, um, it was it was just uh, exciting to, to. It was very strange experience. We're like, oh, well, that makes sense, right? Like, I can't. We either have to do dubbing or we had to do like quote unquote subtitles. And the subtitles were in Japanese, but you know, they weren't subtitles. That's actually like really, really interesting because like makes me wonder if on the dubbed version if it has uh 
if it has like the music and effects tracks from like the regular version yeah or if yeah they I created their if they created their whole own score and you know uh maybe sound effects maybe not to go with the dubbed version i suspect uh, it's probably that way i didn't go and watch it because i did i kind of like okay no. well i need to watch the real movie <laughs> and like kind of left but I, i've been thinking about it since then and i was like oh, i should go back and like check and see because i'm betting that they just had to record all new music and everything right they just couldn't couldn't do it yeah well i think the big studios probably were making what are called dialogue music and effects Mm -hmm. separate tracks when they would make their masters for international releases right you know knowing that they needed to go and sell this in france and germany and japan and everywhere else so they would just send a print right you know with just the music and effects track you know they wouldn't need the dialogue tracks that's all going to get replaced but if walter wenger productions had no intention of selling it internationally right. they never they might have never made a dmne uh stem it might just be just the mono mix uh, i suspect well, that's very, what very my curious, suspicion so. was is that that we, was the, the case we may be able to find an answer to this pat in the five minutes you watched uh did you get i dream of genie stuck in your head because that is the constant music motif over and over. Oh, this. so okay. Well, there's a couple things to this. Okay. Well, number one, it was the same music motif, but it was not the same music okay. of the real estate. Like, I mean, what I mean is like, it was so. It was very clearly a different recording of the same score. I see. Like I could like when I went and watched the regular version on. I went over to to the to the English site and watched it there. It was very clearly a different recording. Uh, the reason I didn't get I Dream of Genie stuck in my head is because there is a Japanese fan, like children's song that uses the same theme as well. And so my wife was wandering around the house singing that song the whole time. Well, there you uh, go. And so, well, first she was like, what song is that? I know that song. And then she eventually found it and then was wandering around the house singing the, the Japanese children's song instead. Uh, so that kind of precluded me. Okay. Well, that's that's still very good. Uh, yeah, I'm like like a lot of things, there's there's a a totally different song with nothing to do with anything, with stagecoach or anything that has a that has Japanese. This happened a lot in like that part of Amer- of Japanese history where like some famous song would come over, like pop song would come over, and then it would get a completely different like like um, Michael Row the Boat Ashore. My son learned it at school, but I think it has entirely different words, for example, uh, and things like that. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it was just a weird situation. I need to go back and check the, the audio version. I suspect it's like a totally new score and like everything is just redone because they probably, as you said, didn't get the, the originals. And so just had to like do some sort of ad hoc thing. And it seems like apparently uh, also made a silent movie version because I suspect maybe they knew that they had to play in theaters that weren't equipped for, uh, yeah, for sound that's, playback. that, that uh, is really fascinating. Uh, I have a a theory that like the French New Wave made subtitles popular because uh, Godard and uh, Truffaut and everybody else didn't know to make separates like or they had such low budgets that they didn't. So then when they shipped off Breathless or 400 Blows to sell them, you know, internationally, like they were just like, yeah, you just have to make subtitles. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you can't dub it. Yeah. Legitimately. (laughs) Yeah. There's not a lot of subtitled versions of most of those movies in Japan. Like you just have to watch the dubbed version or or nothing, basically. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense, too. Um, You know, obviously the. uh, there's always the, the the 1940s European method of uh, 
just recording the French, English, and German versions of the film back to back with the same actors. <laughs> right, uh, right. Or yeah. different actors. Or different yeah. actors, as the case, yeah. as, as need be. Well, uh, like the, the Dracula is the most the famous version of that. The Spanish Dracula would shoot uh, on the 12 hours that. Yes. They, with a different director and totally different cast, the same sets, like Universal shot two so language great. versions. So very good. Um, <laughs> that was one, re- one regret I had about Comanche. Or, no, I'm sorry. One regret I had about pre- Prey is that the Comanche uh, the other soundtrack do it that way, yeah. is, yeah, it wasn't done that way. It is just dubbed, but uh, it's still very good. Um, watching it in Comanche was the proper choice, I think. But anyway, um, yeah, uh, this movie, this movie is, is very interesting in its sort of class politic. Uh, in that there is a class politic in this movie uh, because there really doesn't need to be. Um, it's well, it, it's on the poster of the movie where they're like these like, why are these nine crazy like different people <laughs> right, all right, like right, shoved right. together all in the right. boiler? You know, like like that's the whole point of the movie like is to push all these yeah. people together that wouldn't be together. Like it's a like it's a locked room mystery. Like uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. chamber drama. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh- the exterminated angel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But 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 on a but on a, on a stage. Or like or like Perot's going to jump Which out at the end. Yeah, yeah. So that's what you're really waiting for. Really is like yeah, <laughs> going to come in and start like explaining the crime. Uh, which is the best. Uh, if you guys, right? uh, you should do a Thin Man bonus episode. <laughs> I do love so. Thin Man. I do. Ah, uh, so good. Ah, uh. so the other thing that uh, speaking of sort of. Like not like kind of a of kind of a different direction, but uh, one of the interesting things I discovered was is I was I originally sat down to watch this with my kids, mm-hmm. thinking like oh well like you know this is a it's a you know it's a western I've never seen Stagecoach but I'm fairly certain that like people like it it should be pretty easy to watch. I discovered something which was uh, interestingly enough you have to have a lot of cultural knowledge to get through a western and actually understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> <laughs> like I spent most of like so kids only watch about half an hour, forty five minutes before they're like, ah, peace out. We're gonna go do something else. This is really boring for us, which I was kind of surprised because I was like, well, like you know, it's a it's you know, well, I, interesting things are happening throughout the movie. But what I discovered is that like you have to have so much background knowledge on what's like expected in a Western film. Like even though this movie is very different, at the same time, it's still playing with the same ideas that western movies have that like if you don't understand the sort of vocabulary of a western movie like you just have no idea what's going on uh like and they that was kind of in the end what happened to them is like every 10 five minutes i had to explain like okay well this is why this group you know this person is is upset at this person this is why this is happening like why and some of them some of them are 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 social politics and stuff some of them are like Explaining why why this woman's being driven out of town, which was fine. That was right. worthwhile discussion in and of itself. But like, yeah, I just realized like, like it there if you and I. It's kind of fascinating that like I wonder, like at the time, obviously when it was released here, and Western movies were very popular in Japan for a period of time, uh, and and people had built up the vocabulary to understand like what was going on in them. But now I realize that like my children have never been taught that book. They don't have any of it. So they don't know what's going on. And I suspect that's probably true of most Japanese kids. And I wonder, do American, like you sit down a, an American, like 
eight-year-old or whatever to watch this movie, how much will be discernible and how much won't be because they also, while they while they do have a little bit more awareness of like history, they don't necessarily have the like sort of vocabulary to understand a uh, like what's happening in a Western movie because like like things happen that just happen because that's what happens in Western movies, right? I mean, I felt like I understood more of it now than I did ten years. Well, that, ago. that's also yeah. I was uh, like, yeah. I mean, I I I did not remember at all like that the character of you know Lucy I think is like going traveling to meet her like Union officer husband, and then there's the Confederate like uh, you know ex officer like as the gambler you know figure as well, and that all the tensions and everything between them. Maybe I wasn't paying attention the last right, time I watched right, it, right, but right, like right. it just like I was suddenly like like really like clocked all of the different little subtle class things that are going yeah, on yeah. between them, it, down to the subtlety that like it seems like he's almost like recognized her and unmasked her because she's married to a Union officer yet knows a Confederate officer who knew her father and she grew up on a Virginia plantation. Well, right. right. Yeah. I mean, so it's almost like, was a, like was a it's a Confederate officer, right? Was the, right. Like, and so you're almost just like clocking like different, like little hints of backstory. Like, is she trying to keep from like, does her husband know like her backstory? Is she trying to like hide that? You're, I was just, there's a lot of little subtleties to, to the way they're relating to each other that I didn't even notice the last time. And I think you're, you're right. It's, it's very, yeah complex because they're doing so much with so little because like there's a fair amount of dialogue in the movie but there's so many characters that like right. it's just sketch you just get sketches of people right at right, best right. you know you're not following any one particular arc the arc is the stagecoach journey to lordsburg <laughs> right well and, and it's interesting to see how much is like kind of to a certain extent not like for lack of a better term sort of done with shorthand about like who what kind of person mm -hmm. like when you meet that gambler you know everything you need to know about him from sight alone like essentially yeah. like i mean the southern gentleman quote unquote sort of twist is a bit of a, a twist on the on the on the theme it's not it's not unheard of but it's also not like always the way it is but like his entire like physicality is like oh i know what this guy is and yeah. like you know but like to net like the things you need to read that as a as essentially a quote-unquote bad guy is like is all sort of vocabulary you already have in your head about like well that's what that's that reads as a bad guy right right so i had to explain to my child well he has a he has a thin mustache he's bad uh <laughs> Yeah, uh, you can almost even see like with Ford as well, like and the fact that he is coding him pretty openly as bad, like that his decisions are bad, like trying to kill Lucy is bad of and course. whatnot. And, you know, Ford, you know, was he read voraciously history. Uh, and I think you see, especially by later in his career, he really gets swallowed into the lost cause shift in history that was started with Woodrow Wilson in a large respect was made super popular before he was president and he was writing his histories, uh, but like became the dominant strain of American history regarding the civil war, like in the thirties and forties. Uh, so it's interesting because it's like Ford's almost like pushing back against that, showing him as noble. He's kind of like an embodiment of lost cause, but like there's not, you kind of get a sense from some of Ford's other movies where he's more like kind of openly embracing the lost cause. It's like, oh yes, that's like 
you know something sympathetic to that yeah. we can like we uh there, there's merit to that sort of thing and uh because there was literally no one pushing back against that for 80 right. years we got so. a, we got into that a little bit a couple of weeks ago uh with uh, uh ride with the devil ang lee's uh, right right yeah we were yeah we were and oh, I need to. I have not watched that in forever. Which that notably was, isn't isn't pro lost cause. It, it is no it is, no. It, it, it is it, not that. Oh, uh, uh, it's one of the. I grew up in Southern Missouri, and yeah. when I first saw that movie, I was just like flabbergasted. It is the first time I'd seen the geography I grew up with on a film. Yeah, because it was actually shot in Kansas and Southern Missouri. Like there was just something about it. I was just. And I would need to rewatch it. I haven't thought of that movie in years. You should. So. It's worth. You should. It, yeah. yeah. It, 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 we we you know we had some some issues with it, but mo- not. Yeah. You, if, when you when you hear the episode, it's, it's understandable <laughs> when you watch the movie <laughs> what our issues were. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's just it's sort of interesting. Like those those sort of like codings about like who's what in the movie is is really although. Good news, they definitely recognize the banker as a bad guy, too, almost immediately. Good, good. Which is good. Immediately, that, that literally really have quickly. him lift a huge bag of, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, huge money. wad of money into a bag and then carry that the was, bag yeah, around. That was very, it's, hard, it's very easy to read. Um, yeah. Uh-huh. I think, to be fair to your children, this is not a children's Western. No, no, not, it's not. I, I understand that. I but, like, there are definitely we, we Western watch things more sophisticated yeah. than this all the time. The difference is, is they, they have already had the sort of, like, background information prepared for them just through like their life whereas like westerns don't play anymore like right. mm-hmm. like they've never seen a western ever like in any situation so they don't have any of the background knowledge necessary to like work with it to even like right to and know like i remember it. watching like true grit with my grandparents like because it was a tape my grandma had uh and you know, in the late eighties. And that was like my introduction to Westerns was like that. And maybe something that was Lone Ranger. I don't know if it was the Lone Ranger movie I referred to earlier or not, but it was some Lone Ranger movie from the seventies or eighties as well. I remember those, those two movies in particular as being, that's what I knew of Westerns right, as a kid. Right. So. Yeah. And I, I, saw I, I don't remember when I was very... 12. So. <laughs> well, see, like my yeah. dad grew up in that era and was a, is, was a big big western guy and like we didn't watch that many but like they would come on like tmc or whatever and we would end up watching them so i don't even remember what the first sort of encounter i had with that was but like it's just interesting because like my kid i I don't watch them because they're not particularly it's not particularly my favorite genre of film uh and and so like they've just never ever seen one and right. I was like, and they got like really like well, I don't know what's going on here. I'm gonna leave now. Goodbye. Well, you've, watched, yeah. you've watched enough Kurosawa with them to, to well, and that, absorb that's that the sort thing, of thing right, too, is that, right? Like, but the thing about it is, is that like the when you flip that like and you make it samurai, they know all the the samurai tropes already. Like they've right. they, they've grown up like that still plays I on guess TV. There's here. no there's no yeah. uh, there's no post Confederate thin mustache samurai trope well there are <laughs> versions of that there are the bad guy tropes in samurai, but they look different right because they're meant right. to play to japanese audiences and right, so right. like we on the other hand have been like we as like watchers have like from outside of japan have picked up on what those tropes are and we know them but presumably if like for example samurai movies just stopped playing in the united states for like 50 years 
and then a new person tried to sit down, they would be like, what? like obviously after a few viewings of a few different movies, they would pick up on it. They would be like, okay, yeah. this is this kind of person. This is this kind of person. But like their first outing would be like, sort but of this like, is, the, it would be deep water. They would have like yeah, no clue what's is, going on. Like, why is that person? Yeah, this is a bad Western. This is a bad Western to learn those tropes. From. Yes, it is. Your kids. It is. And, we don't fault your kids it for it. Like, well, yeah. well, no, I, do I don't. Feel, I just was interesting to, to watch. Uh, Pat, do you feel like there's an affinity between Ford's style here and Kurosawa? Um, I would say, like, if I had to say, um, yeah. I the only thing is, I think that like I'm trying to remember like a Kurosawa film that like tracks directly to this. Seven Samurai, like right. at least in the in the assembling of the team. I yeah, mean, but here for you're sure, just for assembling sure, like, people to go on the stagecoach. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, but like, or yeah. even something like what, like you know, people talk about you know, Hidden Fortress or something like that, where mm-hmm. like you know, it's about a journey and stuff like that. Yeah. My only issue is that like film wise, like actually like camera style wise, I don't ever think of like this is a stupid thing to say, but like, Kurosawa's action never feels as like in as like wild runaway as anything like the stagecoach like the actual runaway stagecoach scene and that partly mm-hmm. that's because like i don't know like i always feel like kurosawa would shoot a like oh no the horses are like running across the field to like with like a single you know a camera just like stationed and then like you watch it from afar i don't i never i would never imagine him essentially having a chasing with his truck with the camera chasing another group of people and that, in my head, I can't imagine. I might be wrong because, like, there might be that, well, but yeah, I just can't I don't think, think of it. Those chase sequences aren't something that Kurosawa brings into, uh, brings into his samurai movies. But certainly, like the shootout framing, made me think of a. Kurosawa. I mean, I, yeah, but, but also, I think, but, but then Kurosawa is also, also borrowing from also, other westerns to do that. That's not true. Necessarily and stage then also, right. Kurosawa can also show them like actually hitting each other with swords. Right, right, right. Whereas right, right, right. here uh-huh. they're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> he dives with a gun and then it's over. Uh, whereas what I, you know, uh, Kurosawa can actually show them like slicing at each other, which is a big difference, right? What I love about the ending for Stagecoach is that we get this huge adrenaline rush of the giant action scene, yeah. right? And you're coming off that heart-pumping uh, uh, and you go right into this 20 minutes of just building the tension and right, building right, right. the tension. And it just makes it all the more intense. Like you really feel, feel it. Like 100%. it's, and so like that fact that Ford gets it down to like, just like, you know, one shot of John Wayne, like diving to the ground right. with the gun, like, and that, that's like, it all builds up to just that shot. It's like, like, it's almost it's not about the gunfight it's about the build up right well and and, right. and uh, what i love that he does too in that is that like uh there's this shot when the the three bad guys finally come out and there's this huge like lamp or something in the foreground on screen right and you realize that the bad guys are like they're in a much smaller frame even though it's a really wide shot mm-hmm. and they're far away it's a much smaller frame the the amount of space they're out to get in and you they're in that shot for a while you cut to the next shot they're now in an even smaller part of frame that they can move in. Like they're getting like trapped from shot to shot in smaller Mm -hmm. and smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. And when you finally cut to behind John Wayne, uh, you know, there's nothing in the foreground. It's like, he just walks into frame. He's huge. The it's open in front of him. You can, you have like the town and stuff framing things in the background and providing, 
providing a background like you know basis but like the frame is just totally open in front of him and then it, we cut to the reverse where he then dives you know uh forward in that just like famous shot but it's all the build-up to all of that and the way that it's almost like just like so intricately put together right. visually where you have these oppositions happening they're getting smaller and smaller and he's getting bigger and bigger it's well, right. I think it's really really that's cool. the whole movie really though it's all built yeah. up in reaction right that's mm-hmm. with the exception of the 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 chase scene uh well the the whole you know guess you can't break out of prison and into society in one <laughs> right, week right, like right, that right, whole right. dinner scene is like a it's yeah. almost like its own little like mini climax, like right. everything happening right. in that house, like you know, and like there's all of the dynamics between everybody. Then yeah. she's giving birth, and like the doctor's sobering up. It's like, right? It's it's an intense little bit of like it's almost like like watching theater, like really fast paced, like you know, black box theater almost. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. Well, watching it kind of theater. is that, except for the chasing rise, right, it moves from like box to box, right? Like <laughs> right, everything right. just moves mm-hmm. box to box. And even like if you didn't have the exterior shots on the stagecoach, like like where you know the in that chase, right? If you imagine, if you cut out the things that shoot that appear outside of the stagecoach, that that could also appear in a sort of like like single like route like like drama, right? Where you just like have the characters shooting out the windows or something like that. Uh, and like you know, obviously this has the action scene that like supports that and says what's going on mm-hmm. outside. But like we've all certainly seen like you know small scale theater where they have an action scene where it's just the x number of characters in the box that they're in doing mm-hmm. things towards the external but not showing any of the external like area. It, it like it is just it's just box to box to box to box to box right the whole way. And even Which as is, you said, the, the, even the final the fight tension is, too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and even the final fight is kind of a box, right? Like they're all kind of in this uh-huh. sort of like boxed off area in the town, um, which oddly enough makes um, the only time I even like kind of I didn't struggle. I don't want to call it a struggle, but I found the geography of the town uh, was confusing to me because like somehow her place she was going felt like it was like literally like five feet away from where he's going to have a fight. I was like, wait, well, what's happening? Uh-huh. Here? I, I'm confused. But that's mostly me just not like being good at that kind of stuff. But I was like, what? no, I, I don't think they, he never bothered to establish any of the geography of the town. Right. So like they, there's no continuity between the shots of the stuff that we see around the town. It's just, it is yeah. what it is. And yeah. The fact that we have been in such smaller locations throughout the rest of the mm-hmm. movie, right. we're not really primed to be thinking about it as large a space as this big city is meant to be. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. and so as a result, I was like, "Wait, wait is like, is her, is this place she's going like, literally like a stone's throw away from where they are? Like this, why? Yeah, I don't know. It was that that, yeah. was, that part was well, especially since the rest of it, right? Like because we're moving across the country, like, of course, this is again another thing you have like because you have the knowledge of the place in your head already, you and your mind can imagine them sort of moving across." space right throughout the film and mm-hmm. then you get to the end and it's like there's not like i love the end the end is i think the payoff of the, him just diving and that's sort of the end of the fight is kind of amazing because it is i know he doesn't i know it's probably pa- practical to a certain extent that like oh we can't shoot show the gunshot like fight anyway but like at the same time i really like the idea of like super build up and then it's like he dives he shoots and it's like, oh, that's just the end. Like, of course, that's the end. Like, we, like, of course, he easily handled these these jerks. Like, 
you know, it, it, there's something really exciting about that. I, I really yeah. like it. Well, and I think part of like the town geography problem that you're identifying is that our understanding of Western town geography is set by like all of the famous Westerns we've seen from the forties, fifties, right, the right. spaghetti Westerns and every town is the same. They're usually <laughs> the backlot Westerns of Bonanza. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a one street long tunnel. And you know, if you conceive of the town as not being a one street long tunnel, but like maybe, maybe there's three streets like right, in right, parallel right. to each other, like, which would never happen in a spaghetti Western. Right. And a spaghetti Western would always establish the town with like aerial shots or crane shots or something like, you know, when the guy, you know, Clint Eastwood's first showing up, you know, in the town, like you always have big expansive shots to show off these cool sets. They spent a lot of money building right. <laughs> and, and oftentimes in spaghetti Westerns, it's the same damn town in Southern Spain. Um, like right. it's, it's literally, literally the same town. Um, and and I think that's like that vernacular of like Western movies can only have like one street towns right, right. that that is like kind of throwing us off there. Like if we think of her as just being like, oh, she's three blocks away well, right, on the right. other side of the tracks, like, you know, there's like some sort of drainage ditch or something there. Like, you know, that's where they're they're sending all the sewage. Right. So. <laughs> well, and, that, and that's the weird thing is like I have to assume that the one street town is is nonsense. Right. Like in reality. Right. Like like presumably people build in like radial patterns outward right so like it would make more sense that she would just be like kind of like oh well we're behind those that set of houses is another set of how like buildings that people build yeah and not just a straight line that's like kind of a ridiculous design when you when you start to think about it but uh yeah i think they probably were like you probably would figure if it's rail railway era like the railways at the and the platforms out at the edge of town and then you probably have a little bit of a buffer and then like the one street is probably like close enough to be accessible to all the railway and then probably other streets behind that or like around right, it kind right. of like starting to surround the railway platform. Uh, it would probably be more typical for like a small town of like 300 people to have like three streets, you know, right. And, probably three uh, short streets rather than one long kind of uh -huh. weird tunnel because like that's just not even like really, um, you know. Well, that's sort of, and that, right? like, that's that sort of, and even in those like long tunnel streets, they never make sense because they never, there's always like a train scene, but they never relate where the platform is. Yeah, to the that's rest true. Of the yeah. Town. You're like, I don't know where that so. train is. That's somewhere <laughs> that's sort away of, from here. Yeah. That sort of yeah. dense walkable urbanism was illegal in the wild west. <laughs> so uh, yeah, they had to build the long, the long single streets built completely for trains, not for people. But, uh, yeah. well, and then like you, anyway. when you really think about in like Western movies, right. Because it's all about like how you, like what works well, like what plays well on T on screen. Right. Like that, the, the streets are just maddeningly wide and it's like, well, why, what, I mean, what were you, this has got to suit horses and stagecoaches. They don't need, they don't need a five lane highway running down the middle of this town for no reason. That's <laughs> uh, what, it, what it plays well on, on screen. That's, that's all yes. Right. Yes. Big wide vistas for your for your uh, Technicolor Cinescope Western. Uh, you got to have those wide streets, I guess. Well, I, I imagine it has a lot to do with, like, equipment and, like, where you need to be able to shoot things from and things like that, that you need enough space to do that in, and you don't actually want things that close together or whatever, right? But No, it's just assume. because it's because of backlots. Like, oh, most, Westerns, shape, yeah. most Westerns were shot on backlots, and backlots are built 
as a single street you know yeah it's uh back to the future is the same way like not back to the future three but just like that town square with like those like two streets around that town square is still on the universal lot you can like stand in front of the clock tower and just be like oh wow yeah these are the same streets and if i walk one block over it's new york streets and one right right, that's like chicago streets and yeah uh like it's just kind of the constraints of like where you have space to build for like the the one western street in your back lot and then when they went out to start actually doing big western productions in the 40s they essentially just would recreate the back lot you know and they would build a a town out in the middle of the desert so or like blazing saddles shows like you know (laughs) it's just it's just the face of a building right. (laughs) right yeah that's i mean actually i i was wrong the only other, only other western they've ever seen was Blazing Saddles*. <laughs> a, 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 a absurd deconstruction of uh, westerns that like didn't really give them any hints about how to like actually watch a real western. Uh, and uh, savagely advanced in its like racial mindset. Right. Uh, it's like it you could not imagine anyone making that movie today. Like the things that Richard Pryor got away with in co-writing that. And that Mel Brooks enthusiastically chased is just, yeah, it's yeah, amazing. It's, it is, it it's is absolutely amazing. Yeah. So they were the right people to do it. That's what, yeah. that's what made it work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, speaking of, of racial politics, I will say as, as much as we've already talked about behind the scenes, uh, the native Americans on screen here do not get treated very well. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. We're of, definitely pre like, any sort of like cognizance about like what one would you know like that how to like even remotely begin to talk about that history like in a proper manner right like it's this is just like i these are the people we have to kill they're bad there is there is zero nuance whatsoever um yeah and the only and well until until jimmy stewart's western broken arrow there pretty much was zero you know, right, nuance right, to, right. to Native Americans and yes, in any Western in Hollywood. So. There is, yeah. there is, I guess, a little nuance in the character of Yakima, who I assume is is named for, uh, for the stuntman Yakima. But the uh, the second stop, there's the uh, there's the Mexican shopkeep, and his wife is named Yakima, and she is. She gets a little bit of nuance in being his wife uh, before she runs away and steals his horse and his gun uh, and presumably goes to tell the rest of the Apaches where where they are, I guess, is the implication of what's happening there. Um, And that really makes no sense. No, it doesn't like whatsoever. So, yeah. Uh, Speaking of Yakima, though, I do. There was one other thing about about commit that I wanted to, to mention in that. Yakima is not his birth name, and he he earned the nickname Yakima because uh, a newspaper clipping misidentified which city in Washington he was from. Uh, (laughs) Yakima is a city in Washington State, and people just started calling him that because someone said he was from there at one point. So, uh, and then we get an Apache woman named Yakima in this movie uh, as uh, the image of the image, the (laughs) the reflection of the reflection. Anyway. Uh, yeah. I feel like there was a thing I was meaning to say, and then I started talking about Yakima, and now I don't remember what the thing was. So, um, 
Were you guys surprised when you first heard Andy Devine's voice? <laughs> I love Andy Devine. Yeah, I, I love it. I that is a Andy's voice so I recognize good. from my Andy from Devine my... is not someone I knew from name, uh, but is obviously a voice I recognized. I was not expecting that voice to pop up in this movie. That is certainly true. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's that's definitely true. I I like you know it was one of those things where like it it was unexpected and then became kind of like a warm blanket of like, Oh, okay. This is, I know where, where and what I am now. Um, right. I did not realize how long he was in the, you know, business. You know what I mean? Like I, it like, it never clicked in my head to like, well, this is 1939. And then you go to like his Wikipedia page. It's like starts 1926. It's like, holy yeah. crap. What? And then he's doing voices for Disney in the seventies. Yeah, yeah it's just really like wild to think about. What? His uh, last great movie I've seen him in is John Ford's last great western, "The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance," with uh, mm-hmm. John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart, James Stewart, uh, and that is a great, amazing movie. If you've never seen it, and Andy Devine's in that, and he's wonderful. So, uh, what I what I, one thing I really respect about the nineteen sixty six Stagecoach remake is that they replaced Andy Devine with Slim Pickens, which just seems like ah! the exact right <laughs> the exact perfect. right choice to make. Uh, <laughs> John Wayne is replaced with a guy named Alex Cord, uh, who who apparently is the reason that movie bombed. <laughs> Does not appear to yeah. have had this as a breakout role the way uh not in the same way. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh it's hard to follow like those star making turns. <laughs> it's i mean it's part of why like they even though there's been many remakes of many classic movies like it's why they can't really remake you know a singing in the rain or a casablanca like right god knows they're going to try but like if you don't have the star power that ineffable aspect that those actors brought to things like it's just not going to work even if your script is as good and your filmmaking is as good i mean the you know the psycho with uh the remake they did shot for shot in the nineties, you know, doesn't work like without the stars, it doesn't work. Well, and and you get into this sort of a weird, like there's a kind of like a sort of extra like thing in my mind to that, which is like those stars are of a specific time and a specific era where certain things are valued in stars at that time. Right. Like when you think about something like singing in the rain, those sort of aspects of what, makes that movie work depend on those stars and those stars we don't have actors who are like that as like popular actors really anymore that much right like who have those sort that sort of skill set and like are you know like actors are not generally known for their dancing skills uh as a like hallmark feature in in this era right so like you're already kind of like well except for twitch well right well and so what you end up is like it's not impossible that those circumstances could be recreated like you know something like twitch might eventually result in like <laughs> a group of actors who are famous for their dancing skills and therefore like oh we could make another musical now that's not like trash but like it's not going to be easy to do because also your audience isn't primed for it either right like your audience and your everybody has to be on board for it right and like that's hard to yeah. do right well and it's it's also just it's like there's 
so many of those actors are a product of vaudeville or dinner right, theater. Exactly, yeah. You know, like, there's so many great dancers in the 1930s because, like, you know, every restaurant in New York City in, in right. London, you know, had, like, a whole elaborate stage show that they did every night. Right, so right, there were tap, yeah. tap dancers and singers and, like, you know, right. comedy acts and everything else. And it built up this big... Uh, you know, portfolio of people with talents and then like just the people that actually like, like worked on camera, which, you know, you can never quite tell who that's going to be, uh, you know, filtered up to the top and you wind up with right. Fred Astaire and, right. and well, uh, Gene Kelly. And also it's not even just dancing, right? Like that, that vaudeville pass is like dancing with a certain sort of like stage flair, right? That like plays mm-hmm. well in those kind of movies, right? Even if you're a good dancer, doesn't mean you're going to be good for like a musical, right? Or or something to that effect, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not just dancing, right? It's showmanship, right? And uh, right, it's not that it's not that those people are impossible to find. It's just like that's not the going thing now. So there's not a million of them, right? Like that you can like find right. the best of, right? Uh, and yeah, something like you know something like you know with this we were talking about like it's it's always the same thing, right? When you try to remake same deal right yeah well i thought it was kind of interesting maybe it was in the essay uh the woman who plays lucy has almost no screen credits and apparently they brought her in for this movie uh because she was a big star on broadway and they wanted kind of the tension of high and low that that her being a broadway trained stage actress would bring to the screen against claire trevor's much more natural dallas uh you know playing the the low prostitute uh and i think it's a subtle like one of those subtle things you were talking about before of like just like that that really really works really well and like you there's there's all those little like just flourishes of how they they put all of these pieces together that's quite remarkable yeah yeah it's interesting in that regard then that that claire trevor is the highest paid actor in this entire movie right like uh maybe there's a prostitution metaphor in there too but uh uh yeah and well and also just actresses that say you want me to play what and then they quote a higher rate <laughs> right, 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 so. right 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 <laughs> oh you are gonna yeah, that, pay me god cost, damn it yeah, now i have to do it. Gotta yeah. do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah john john wayne paid a pittance for this movie uh about a about a third i think is that what it was yeah about a third of what she made and about half of what uh the other male stars made well and and you know and bear in mind that every other actor in the movie like in that top billing area has like a whole repertoire of films behind them at this point right like well and also john wayne you know the kinds of movies he'd been doing his agent probably only placed actors in those kinds of movies didn't even really know the rates to ask. Right. right so his right. agent probably, the reason he got paid that was not because he was paid less. His he got paid that because he didn't have an agent that put, yeah. you know, people like Thomas Mitchell, like had an agent that got him cast in movies and had a rate for him and knew what the going rate right, was right. for certain kinds of movies. And John Wayne's agent at the time probably had no clue and thought he was getting him a really good price. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So. Most money John Wayne's made for a movie in a decade at that point, right? Probably, so. yeah. So, yeah. Ah, uh. and you know, by the mid '40s, he was probably making a million dollars a picture. Right, so. right, right, yeah. So, uh, well, and that's interesting too because it's it's Jimmy Stewart doing Winchester '73 in the late, maybe early '50s, is the inflection point in time 
where actors shifted from getting more larger and larger salaries per picture to taking percentages of the gross to taking points as part of their compensation. Jimmy Stewart's agent is the one that like created that contract that then all the stars in the fifties adapt, uh, you know, adopted, uh, as they all went off on their own after the Paramount decision broke up the studios, monop vertical monopolies for the most part. Uh, so it's interesting that it was a Western as well. And that it's like, and it was people getting paid incredible amounts of money. And that's actually how they financed that picture was because they couldn't afford to make the picture and pay Jimmy Stewart. But if he took a percentage, they could still afford to make it. Cause they didn't have to just like take so much off the top of the budget to pay his salary. Right. So money ruins everything. <laughs> uh, uh, what's, what's good for the bankers is good for the country though, I suppose. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Well, it's, it's like it's, just one line that just made you instantly hate him. Yeah, like, yeah. No, it's it's really it's amazing. It like there's they do a lot of like you get a lot of information very very quickly in in, in this movie about like pretty much every character really quite smoothly. Right? It's it's very uh, concise the, that way. The opening sequence of this movie introducing everyone is just perfect. Uh, you know. It establishes yeah. pre-existing relationships. It lets us know how everyone feels about one another, even the ones who are just freshly meeting. Uh, and it establishes the, the hypocrisy of the social norms of the time. Uh, it has an, as well. It does all that establishing and it has an opinion about it. Right. And it lets right. you know what it is too, which is like right. really, really like impressive. Yeah. So. Especially for it's how not, how quick and not naturally it storytelling. happens, right? How quickly and how na <laughs> well, naturally. Well, and what it ends happens. up happening, right, is you you it, what it does is it feeds into a thing that like we all sort of like do naturally that a lot of films you know can fail at pretty quickly, which is like you as a person like read situations quite quickly in your no, your natural environment, right, and like can tell like what people feel about each other pretty quickly and things like that, but like movies sometimes have a hard time telling you that information in a way that like works mm -hmm. well and quickly that you can like read. And this one just like knows exactly what to show you to make you be like, yep, that person doesn't like that person. That person, you know, the, you, you know, the whole like social dynamic of the town, like almost instantly. Right. It, it's really and impressive. Ford was a really unique master at communicating all of that visually. Uh, it's why he was so successful making silent pictures and then had a 40 year career making talkies, which is like, you know, he's got for someone that started off in like 1914, 1915 directing pictures. He's got like one of the longest careers of any director in history. Uh, and it's because he was just so good at communicating character with, with images uh, right. And and not just character, but the relationships between characters, the things that you can't see, like it's just the the way he would structure shots, like within the shot, like the way that people move around each other, just tells you so much about class dynamics, about who they are, how they feel mm -hmm. about each other. It's there's there are few people as good at doing that as John Ford. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, it just it it. Yeah, it, it's very impressive. Like, it really reads in a way that, like, I... It's kind of shocking because, you know, like, when I think about the way I've become used to watching film, I feel like a lot of movies do tend to take a fairly long time explaining those dynamics and those relationships, and that, like, you can, like... And part of it is because some of the relationships and dynamics are fairly simplistic, right? Like, I mean, like, 
he's he's not overcomplicating some of the the nature of those dynamics you know terribly much right like it, like you know and and sometimes to the detriment right like especially when you're dealing with like for example uh the the apache in the film being like <laughs> having no 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 existence whatsoever right. beyond being the, the being the bad guy right yeah but, but everyone's but, sort of an archetype here too right that's what i mean is like yeah. and, and i mean that one's the most simplistic one possible but like everybody is an archetype but like it it's communicated very very smoothly and and like it just kind of goes to show that like there's like i guess there's more more than one way to skin the cat i suppose in terms of like how you tell people about the the characters in the film and like because like this movie is is sort of to a certain extent i don't want, like it's not rushing it's like it's paced well and everything like that it it's it's like doesn't feel it necessary to spend a very long time establishing those dynamics like no we can get you everything you need to know in the five minutes that we're loading the stage coach and then like now we can have the story of the movie rather than spend a long time on on the setup of that and that works well because you're like the audience is getting through that very quickly means that the audience can spend most of their energy focusing on like well the exciting bit of the story like okay well we know how everybody feels about everybody so now let's go let's hit the road yeah, but another uh, an, interesting another aspect of that and and anticipation uh, in the entire build of this movie, um, you know, obviously someone someone watching this movie in 1939 maybe doesn't know to expect John Wayne, right? They right right they right yeah that may that might be they true. know he's yeah, a star, yeah. but but we leave the first town and we haven't met John Wayne yet, and we get we just meet John Wayne in the desert, <laughs> right. But I yes, that's very true. So he's, and I think he's that's the only very, character who gets his own. He's mentioned by name in the introduction right. of, of. But we don't uh, know who he is. Curly yeah. and the driver. We don't know who he is yet, and we we meet him separately from someone else. He comes in after that community of people in the stagecoach has already been established for for the audience, and immediately disrupts everybody. Right, <laughs> right, so right, like, right. Yeah. He, yeah. And and really is like what's necessary to like mix it up, right? Makes everybody mix in a way that like they were not planning to, right? Like everything everything's already rigidly set off by the time by the time he arrives, like oh, this is everybody's place in this world. And then it's notable that he sits in the middle, right? Like right. and then creates all the sort of mm-hmm. like intermingling that starts to happen. Um it's also interesting that like nonetheless despite not being introduced at the beginning other than by name and like a brief description that also the way he's introduced, like tells you all you need to know about John Wayne's character because he gets like a suit, like it gets a hero shot essentially right, like when he right. appears, right? Mm-hmm. It's him in the frame, middle of the frame by himself, kind of like the camera's looking up a little bit. He looks like bigger than life. He's it's, it's very clear. Like, ah, here's the hero. You were wondering where the hero of this story was. Here's <laughs> right. the hero of this story because you haven't met him yet. Obviously. Uh, and you could tell that you haven't met him when you, when they leave the like you say like they're not they're not expecting John Wayne and that's true right like you know you're not like unless you're like really bored in the movie theater and trying to prophesy what's going to happen next but at the same time as soon as he appears you're like ah right we don't have a hero yet none of the people we've seen so far is a hero they are all side characters to the hero uh, and then he's introduced like yep there he is got it and it's uh, and he. The first thing he does as a hero is like you're saying, he's he sits in the middle and then he starts breaking apart the, the right. class barriers. Like right. just you know, setting the two women sitting, you know, next to each other, inviting uh, you know, Dallas to the table and right. 
it, 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 you know, it's again, it's all of those like little subtle things, but it's just like, right. that's like the, we said the movie had an opinion about the class dynamics, like from that first opening scene with all of the, like, you know, uh, prohibitionists or whatever the society league and uh and you know you know you know what side john wayne is on as well like he's taking that on and he's trying to put it into it right away it's like it's i had never thought of that but like that is like if he, he since he is the hero like his first heroic action is just pulling up a chair Right, right, you know. right. Yeah, and and it, and it's worth noting that like it is fascinating for as we talked about with John Ford's politics and things like that, especially at this time, the idea that like the hero of the story is one of their main components is attacking class politics, not just like I mean obviously yeah. there's the whole battle sequence and there's a lot of like actual like sort of traditional Western hero like activities for a hero, but also one as you said his first heroic act is is pulling up a chair. And like, you know, but also just like immediately starting to like break down the the, the politics of like of that structure inside the coach even like almost yeah. immediately. It's it's like it's like literally instantaneously he gets there and he's already like chastising people for treating Dallas bad and things like that. And like mm-hmm. it's interesting because I think it's sort of like a it, it it's not hidden, but I feel like it is a little bit on purpose hidden under the like, well, it's also his love interest, but like. I think that's more of a cover than it is anything else. It's like, uh, it's like, well, you know, if you don't, if somebody doesn't want to sort of engage with the politics of the movie, it's like, well, it's just a love interest. But like, obviously, like also, he's he's. It's not just. It goes across multiple lines in the in the stagecoach. He's the sort of catalyst for like making everything go yeah fall and apart. The movie is also wise enough to show that he can't succeed in changing their minds. Right. It doesn't even suggest that he succeeds at that. He can expose them, but the right. only thing that actually changes anybody's minds is the baby being born. So it's like right. the movie is suggesting the next generation, you know, that is where things can be changed. And like that baby is almost symbolic of the breaking down of class divides. So. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, it, yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, he doesn't ever even really, yeah, he mostly, yeah, just, more than anything chastises them for like how bad their how bad their views of each other are rather than like yeah being able to actually do anything about it i mean other than when he can personally exert influence over what's happening right like with the chair and things like that where like john wayne's well, character takes action when there's when there's something he can actually do but you know it's also interesting that like dallas is the person we know the least about like all we know is that she's being thrown out of the town and then like even for us, like we've called, you know, said she's a prostitute or, but we really don't know anything about her. We just have those scripts in our head of like the, right. the vernacular of the Western. And we just assume she fits in this role. That's fair. But like, yeah. you know, she could be a dancer. She could be like, you know, a cabaret type of person. Like the, does, she doesn't have to have been a prostitute there. There's a lot of different right. uh, reasons she could be thrown out of the town. You know, it could be as simple as having an affair with the mayor, you know. Like, right. Yeah. Like it, and yeah, that's very true. Like, I mean, yeah, it, it's worth noting that like I think and that's very much it's partially on purpose because of like, you know, what they can and can't talk about in a movie. Yes. But also there's a certain, I think, intentionality in like that as well that that is happening here in the movie, which is like, OK, like people get run out of town by things like the Society League all the time half the time based on rumor alone right like she doesn't actually Mm -hmm. have to have done 
anything. And all she, she probably to, didn't. Right, exactly. And like all it all that has to have happened is they decided she was a moral she was a, a immoral and then they're like, "Okay, well, she has to go." Right? Like it it really we don't know and I think it's very on purpose to, you know, cuz there's ways to telegraph that information even more strongly if if they wanted to tell you more, but they kind of John Ford doesn't, I think in part because like it's a condemnation of the of the the society league, not her, right? It's about like, mm-hmm. oh, they don't have to have a good reason or even any reason at all to run you out of town. Like they're also running out the the, the doctor too, right? Like yeah, I mean, but they probably had a good reason for the doctor. He uh, is well, he is okay, a drunk song. drunkenness. Yeah, I understand but. that. I understand that. But bear in mind, uh, he also demonstrates that he's quite competent multiple times in That's this fair. movie. Yes, he is drunk for sure, drunk. and that is not how you should be doing doctoring. But nonetheless, he competently deals with multiple issues in this movie. I, I'm just saying, like, they are. Yeah. Is there another doctor? Like, I don't know. But like, uh, it, well, no, and it's, it's that it's that irascibility of like John Ford. You know, he's not telling you more about Dallas because he expects people to jump to these conclusions. Right. And so you can almost imagine like that interviewer asking him a question about Dallas and referring to her as a prostitute. He's like, "A what now?" Yeah, you know, like yeah. where he right, and right. then he would just like be like, well, we never said she was that. Like, why do you think she was that? Like, it's it's kind of putting the audience on the spot. Like, it's making in a very subtle way, kind of making the audience a little bit complicit. Like in the fact that we all jump to that conclusions means we're still part of the problem. Well, friends, I think we'd probably pull this too close. I'm not sure I really have anything else to say. No, uh, I think we've he, talked longer than the runtime of the movie. We, so. we have so far. That's that's for <laughs> this sure. This has become we got, we got enough. We got enough. Uh, we got enough asides and segues here that we we can cut. This will still be under mm-hmm. an hour and forty by the time we finish editing. But uh, in any case, uh, this week we've been talking about Stagecoach, nineteen thirty nine, with John Ford. Uh, next week we're going to start uh, a process. Is what we're going to start next week. Uh, I like many, to think of it as an endeavor. Yes, an endeavor. Many, many years ago, we watched volume one of By Brackage, and we did it all in one episode, and it was, was a terrible, a mistake. terrible mistake. Uh, so now we're possibly going to err on the side of caution, uh, and we're going to spend the next six weeks going through By Brackage 2 uh, in order to take it in the... Uh, in the divisions that the Criterion DVDs are offering to us, which is about one hour material per uh, per set. Uh, so we're going to spend a lot of time with it, uh, and hopefully that's not a mistake, but we'll find out well, as we go through. I, I mean, it can't, it can't, nothing could possibly be worse than it can't watching be, like 14 right. hours of brackage and like trying to do a single episode on it. Right, we didn't right. understand what we were doing at the time. That's, we didn't we didn't realize anything about brackage. We didn't realize anything about like what this show was should be. Right. And so we're right, like, well, right. I mean, like everything's one episode. Doesn't matter how long it is. Like, well, whatever. Twelve hours later. <laughs> right. Twelve twelve hours of thirty second yeah. uh, abstract film. Uh, yeah. It's like I sprinted through the abstract, you know, the Museum of Modern Art, and now yeah. I'm ready to talk about it. Right. 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 It was a uh, yeah. Uh, right. We were. We were doing that scene from Band Apart where they run through yeah, exactly. the Louvre. Yeah, exactly, totally. Uh, it's like, and, I've, been, I've been to the Louvre now, and I know everything yeah. about it. 
yeah, well, we're going to go back to the Louvre and try a little better this time and see how it goes. So we've got that to look forward to. But thank you so much, Adam, for joining us. Adam Speakerman, always a delight to have you on. Really fun. uh, Yeah. Yeah, It's great to be here. Good to have you. We'll get you back again if we can uh, if we can work out the timing Uh, with that. uh, With with us taking six weeks for the Brackage Volume Two, though. It, it might be a while before you come back, but <laughs> that's a lot of brackage. It is a lot of brackage. Yeah, a month and a half of brackage is. Uh, I'm a little nervous about that aspect, but well, the really challenging part I is going to be the postcard for that month. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I am more like, nervous like, about trying to watch all of that brackage and keep it differentiated in my head. Oh, it's than I than I am about actually just taking it slow enough that that can happen. So. <laughs> Anyway, thank you, I'm Adam. I'm just excited to maybe have opinions about specific bracket pieces, which is right, wild right. to me. Because instead I don't of, right now. Instead of just a feeling about them as a total. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Ogre, Ari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.